0: As most of you know, this past Monday morning, parents were dropping off their children at the Covenant School in Nashville, anticipating a bright, sunny, promising day of love and friendship and learning, and no one could have possibly fathomed what would happen soon after this, when a 28-year-old assailant entered the building, opening fire resulting in the loss of three nine-year-old children, three adults on staff, and finally the shooter themselves. that has been with me all week. I hope we haven't grown so desensitized in our culture that you've already emotionally moved on from that. Perhaps it hit me a little bit more uniquely in the sense that we have a Christian school that meets in our own local church building, five days a week of similar size and theological and educational conviction as that school in Nashville does. Perhaps it was the fact that the pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church had a nine-year-old daughter who was killed in the shooting, and I have a nine-year-old daughter. A local Nashville pastor, Scott Sauls, wrote the following about the events this week. He says, part of a pastor's calling is to enter into life's disorienting, gut-punching, heart-ripping spaces and offer perspective on questions that honestly cannot be answered. This is especially true when the main question being asked is why? Why would a good and loving God who is sovereign over every square inch of the universe, who knows the number of hairs on our heads, who said, let the little children come to me, and who promised again and again to be our shield and protector and defender, allow the senseless loss of life of these precious little ones? Why would the same God let faithful, loving, godly educators also be gutted from their families and communities so prematurely? Why would he let the young survivors and the brave grown-ups who courageously protected them experience the trauma of being there, hearing the gunfire, being rushed frantically to places of safety, and then be marked by the memory for the rest of their precious lives? Why would he not foil and fail the shooter's plans before a single shot was fired? Why would the God who holds even the hearts of kings in his hands, not by his power of persuasion over the hearts of all humans, redirect the intent of the assailant's heart as well? Why would God let the heart of one of his own image bearers to go to such a dark and horrific place and then follow through with such a dark, horrific plan? We already know the answer to such questions which is that we will never know the answer to such questions, end quote. The why question cannot be answered from our earthbound perspectives. But that doesn't mean that God's word doesn't give us perspectives on such questions, even as it invites us to ask such questions. In God's providence, we find ourselves in a series of sermons in the Psalms Psalms of which David wrote while he was on the run in great distress from King Saul and 1 Samuel. As we read, the historical background is 1 Samuel 21, 10 to 15. And this is one of two Psalms that was written about that crisis. The other, Psalm 34, we will consider next week on Resurrection Sunday morning. Just to remind you that David is on the run. And has fled to Gath, the city of the Philistines, where Goliath was from. And he wrote Psalm 56 when he was seized by the Philistines while running from Saul and his men. David thought he might find refuge there if the Philistines had forgotten who he was. But they hadn't. In fact, some of the servants recognized him and they saw him as the king who was soon to come, and they repeated the refrain that had been sung and said throughout the land of Israel, Is not this king David the the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul struck his thousands, but David his ten thousands. The Philistines had heard, so they seized him. And David, running for his life from one murderer with an army of soldiers, runs into the arms of another jealous and dangerous enemy. What kind of pressure? must David have been under, to flee to enemy territory to get rid of his enemies? Dear ones, this psalm is not only about David, and it not only applies to David's being on the run and how, if we ever find ourselves in similar situations, what we are to do, but it speaks to us of profound truth that will comfort us even in light of the events that took place this week. As one writer commented, this section and this action on the part of David to flee from Israel into the land of the Philistines took the courage of despair. The measurement of David's desperation is seen in the fact that he had to flee his own country in order to escape people who desired his life there. And it also showed how confident he felt at the, at the time of anyone in his own country coming to his aid. So he was doubly encircled, wasn't he? Those who are willing to help him are few. At least at this time, we know that 400 would come to his aid eventually. But those who are against him are many. The Philistines recognize David as the emerging king of Israel and they take him into custody. He's on the run from people who want to take his life. What do we learn in the wake of lives taken unjustly about how we are to respond as God's people? So as we go, we're going to make application to ourselves. And as we see David's response here, we'll also make some application along the way in light of the events in Nashville this week. First of all, I want us to notice An experience of terror. An experience of terror. I was going to use the word trouble, but we overuse the word trouble. And trouble doesn't land on us like it should. We all have troubles. Job said that man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. Through many troubles, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Dear ones, what David is facing is not just trouble, it's terror. He is having his life hunted down to be taken away from him unjustly by people who desire to kill him. His appeal is in verse 1. It's the title of our sermon this morning. It is a simple cry for God to be gracious to him. He cries out to God to come to his aid. Now, what kind of trouble, what kind of terror is David facing? Well, notice how he explains it. He summarizes in verses 1 and 2, and then he provides some detail in verses 5 and 6. First of all, notice the summary. Verses 1 and 2. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. Man has come in and sought to run me over. All day long, the attacker, the attacker. we heard anything about attackers this week? The attacker oppresses me. Look at verse two, my enemies trample on me all day long for many attack me proudly. Notice how he's gone in verse one from describing man singular, the man tramples on me, the attacker singular oppresses me to plural in chapter two, my enemies plural trample on me for many attack me proudly. What's that meant to communicate? Well, the opposition is growing. Except for a handful of true friends, it seems like the entire world is against David. What are these men? What are these enemies doing? Well, they're trampling on David. And this trampling is connected to the word attack in verses 1 and 2. Evil men are in hot pursuit of him. The word for tramples is literally panting after. They are on his heels and he can feel their breath on his neck. They are closing in on him, and his life is in danger. We saw this week surveillance video of a van pulling into the school parking lot, parking, unloading, and moving in, shooting their way into a school, closing in on the lives of those within, seeking to take them. Doing it, no doubt, proudly, as... David describes his attackers here. No regard for God. Confident, both in their right and their power to take out David. This woman, no doubt, felt like she was in the right to take out her aggression on this school of which she was once a part. And note the frequency of what David says. Twice in the opening verses, he uses the phrase all day long. This terror takes the form of attacking an all-out, all-day assault, seeking to oppress and kill David. Now, David spells out the various forms this attack takes in four different ways in verses 5 and 6. Let's look at them one at a time. Here's where he unpacks for us what this attack looks like. First of all, he says, my words are distorted. My words are distorted. Look at verse 5. David writes, all day long they injure my cause. Literally, they twist my words. Again, all day long, these people twist his words. They reinterpret what God is doing as a threat to them. And he becomes the object of a slanderous smear campaign. Secondly, he says, my harm is devised. Look at the second half of verse five. He says, all their thoughts are against me for evil. The thoughts they have about David are intended to do him harm. They're thinking of ways to hurt him, to bring him down, to kill him, to stop his ascent to the throne. They're lurking in the shadows, ready to strike at any moment's notice. His words are distorted. His harm is devised. Thirdly, he says, my steps are dogged. Notice verse six. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. They're keeping track of all of his movements, keeping an eye on where he is, where he's going, seeking out people who will give them intel on his whereabouts. They're watching his steps. They're putting their heads together in secret rooms. They're spying on him. They're conspiring together how to find him. We read of the shooter this week of having an extensive map of the entire school, having plans of where they could find and attack the students and the faculty. This ultimately brings us to the main reason for the attack. The main reason that David's words were distorted. The main reason his harm was devised. The main reason his step was dogged. And that was because, fourthly, my life is desired. My life is desired. They want to take his life. He says in verse 6, they have waited for my life. They're eager to pounce on him, to take him out. This terror was real. This terror was painful. This terror was potentially devastating. Like Paul felt in 2 Corinthians 4 8, David feels pressed in on every side, nowhere to go, nowhere to run, trapped, as it were, at the hands of his enemies. That's his experience of terror. It was an experience not unlike what the faculty and school, family, of Covenant School is doing right now, even as they gather in their churches all across the city of Nashville. We join with them in their laments and their grief as they sing and pray and try to process all that's taken place. That's an experience of terror. Secondly, an expression of trust. An expression of trust. Now, what would be the natural response of David or us or the covenant school community, to all this terror? What's the natural human response? Fear. Fear. This is why David uses the word afraid three times in these verses. And we can certainly relate. When lives are lost, especially in such a senseless and rupturing kind of way, the protest of Martha, who had just buried her brother Lazarus after a premature death, her protest feels right. She said in John 11, 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Doesn't that feel like more of an appropriate response? Lord, if you had been here, shouldn't we confront God for abandoning us in our times of greatest need? Should we give voice to the feeling that he didn't come through for us even when we cried out to him in fear and despair? Do we challenge him for not doing the things we know that he's supposed to do as a God who protects and defends and upholds the weak? When tragedies involving death of children and their beloved educators happen, is it right to question God? Is it right to confront him for his inaction? Is it our place to question him even for these things? Well, after losing his wife to an untimely death because of cancer, C.S. Lewis dared to question God in a similar Martha-like fashion in his book, A Grief Observed. He said, quote, go to God when you when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find a door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside? And after that, silence, end quote. No doubt, maybe some families are even experiencing that now. Feeling like God has not only bolted the door, but double bolted it. And remaining silent in the face of such tragedy and terror. But how does David teach us to respond here? How does David respond to his experience of terror as his life is hunted down at the hand of Saul and his men? Well, he expresses trust in God. And this is what our brothers and sisters in Nashville are doing this morning. They're expressing their trust in God. David does that four ways. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 and 10 and 11 and see the ways that David expresses his trust. First of all, David consciously trusts in God. David consciously trusts. Trust in God. Notice verse 3. He says, when I am afraid, I will what? I will trust in you. God knows you're afraid, David. God knew the children were afraid. The teachers are afraid. The families are afraid. He doesn't condemn people for their fear, but he calls us to trust, uh, trust him in the midst of the fear. He alone can drive out those fears. David feels afraid, and that fear is right and proper and good. However, to give in to such fear and to refuse to trust God would not be proper and right and good. As soon as the fear arises, David answers by trusting God. David acknowledges his human frailty, and he answers that frailty with a deliberate, defiant trust in God. Contrary to circumstances, contrary to feelings, this is an intentional transfer of trust to God in defiance of his emotional condition. And dear ones, that's where we have to start when we're afraid. You have to consciously, emotionally defy it and trust God in the face of it, regardless of your emotional condition. Trust requires a conscience, conscious, willful decision. And that's what David does. He says, when I'm afraid, I'm going to make a choice. I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to trust in you. Secondly, David completely trusts in God. David completely trusts in God. Notice that three times in these verses, he uses this phrase. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. When David put his trust in God, where was he placing it? He's placing it in God's word. He said, in God I trust, in God whose word I praise. Now, what word is he referring to? Well, he could be referring to the Old Testament scriptures, but more likely he's referring to the promises that he made and received, or that he received, not made, that that he received from God through Samuel about his coming kingship. He was confident in Samuel's word to him as the prophet of God, that the prophet had spoken true words over his life, and that David would be king. So David didn't just pray vague prayers of hope. He anchored his pain and his longing and his fear in the specific promises of God's word. When you're afraid, where do you look? Where do you cling? Where do we cling? We're to cling to God and his word. Instead of dwelling on the terrifying mountains in front of us, we should set our minds on what God has said to those who love him. And suddenly the threats no longer seem threatening because they're being drowned out by a louder voice that we're giving our attention to, namely God and his word. When we're in trouble, we have the opportunity for one of two things to consume our hearts and minds. Either our problems will consume our hearts and minds and all that we're able to do about it, or God's word will consume our hearts and minds and what he is able to do about it. And David makes a conscious choice here not to focus on all that's going on around him, although he's not naive to that. He's aware of that. But his object of trust is God, and his, he's oriented to God's word, to God's promises. And that's, that, dear ones, is how we continue to fight fear in our own lives. We orient ourselves to what God has said about us in his word. Thirdly, David confidently trusts in God. David confidently trusts in God. He says in verse 4 and verse 11, In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. I shall not be afraid. Now, is he saying that somehow when he trusts in God, that the fear just magically goes away? Well, I don't think so. Again, he's saying with confidence that I refuse to be afraid And I know that I will one day not be. I shall not be afraid. Because when we trust in God, there is no reason to ultimately fear. While we come to God because we are afraid, faith has a way of answering it. We tell ourselves, self, stop worrying. Start worshiping. Self, stop lamenting. Start looking. Self, stop languishing. Start listening. Stop looking around at your circumstances and stop looking in at yourself. Start looking up to God and down at His Word. That's what we tell ourselves. Stop looking around at your circumstances and in at yourself and start looking up to God and down at His Word. Fourthly, David courageously trusts in God. David courageously trusts in God. He says in verse 4, What can flesh do to me? He says in verse 11, What can man do to me? I'd like to answer that question for you, David. They can kill you. They can kill you. And David will respond, So, what can they do to me? Sounds like Paul in Romans 8, doesn't it? We are being killed all day long, counted as sheep to be slaughtered, yet we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because there's a resurrection on the other side of that. Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus' logic, don't be afraid. You can only be killed. See, David asked these questions rhetorically, implying the negative answer. Nothing can happen to me except what God sovereignly permits. David knew that men were powerless to thwart anything that God had ordained in his life and any purposes God had for his life. And dear ones, so was the shooter on Monday. God was sovereign over every bullet. You say, Pastor Mark, that's hard to believe. What's the opposite? Who's sovereign then? You want to live in a world like that? I don't. Ironically, the very thing that troubles us is the, ultimately only the only thing that can comfort us. And David knows this as well. And that's why believers are gathering in churches in Nashville this week, singing and praying and trusting confidently in God because they know that ultimately no man and no flesh can do anything to them except what God in his sovereign love permits. See, when God is big, people are small. And when people are big, God is small. When God is big to us, the enemies that David talks about in verse 1 get downsized to the flesh he talks about in verses 4 and 11. And the attackers that he mentions in verse 1 get downsized to nondescript and unimportant men in verse 4 and 11. They can kill us. They won't defeat us. That is David's hope. That's our hope. And that's the hope of our brothers and sisters in the covenant school community this week. David chooses consciously to trust in God. He completely and confidently and courageously trusts in God. It's all we can do. It's the only place we can look when we experience such trouble and terror. So if we have an experience of terror, We have an expression of trust. Thirdly and finally, we have an expectation of triumph. We have an expectation of triumph. David says four words that speak to our glorious future and our certain hope and provide immense comfort, not only for David, but for us in light of all that has transpired this week. First of all, notice what he says in verse 7. My God is just. My God is just. Verse 7, we read, For their crime, will they escape? For her crime, will she escape? No. My God is just. The judge of all the earth will do right. That's where David looks. That's where we look. In wrath, David says, cast down the peoples, O God. David is confident that God will not allow those who oppress him to escape divine judgment. He wants God in his righteous anger to bring vengeance and retribution upon them because of their sin. And this prayer would eventually be answered, but it would take years. We read in 2 Samuel 5, verse 17, When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, but David heard of it, and went down to the stronghold. Verse 25. And David did as the Lord commanded him. And struck down the Philistines. From Geba to Gezer. The whole land Wiped out. By David. God is just. God answers the prayers of his people. For God to send divine judgment. On their enemies. And he did. But it took years. Second Samuel 8.1 we read. After this David defeated the Philistines. And subdued them. And David took Mithag Amma out of the hand of the Philistines. David defeating the Philistines as he becomes king of Israel. We'll see that more when we get to 2 Samuel. But notice, God is just. God answered David's crimes. These Philistines that were oppressing him, these men of Saul who were coming after him for their crime, David asked, will they escape? No, they won't. God in his time will execute his justice. Just because God's justice doesn't respond immediately doesn't mean that God is not just. Nor does it mean that God's justice will not respond. As one writer says, the wheels of God's justice can grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. What do we do in the midst of that? No doubt, some justice was given on Monday morning. After 15 minutes, the police responded quickly and swiftly. Textbookly took out the shooter at Covenant School. That was an expression of God's justice. However, that's not the only justice we look for. We look for a justice to come to the earth in which things like that not only don't happen, but police aren't even needed and such activity isn't even thought about. Right before Jesus shouted, come forth, into Lazarus' tomb, and the dead man came forth and lived again, what does it say? Jesus was deeply moved in spirit. Now, what does that mean? The literal meaning is that Jesus was furious. He's likened to a raging bull with flaring nostrils who's about to rush and attack and trample on its prey under its heavy and insurmountable feet. We read at the beginning of Psalm 56 about men who desire to trample David. You know there's another man who desires to trample something? Jesus Christ, the God-man, desires to rush and attack and trample with his insurmountable and heavy feet, death itself. He's not passive. Jesus, far from it, he is a raging, trampling bull who rages at and will trample over death and restore all that it has and has and has taken and will take. Anything that's been lost at the hands of death. Our Lord has his own reasons for everything, including why he waited several days to go visit Lazarus and let him die. We know one reason. It was so he'd raise him from the dead and so he'd be glorified in the midst of the people and that so he could treat, teach the people there that they themselves, if they believe in him, would be raised from the dead as well. Mary and Martha not having Jesus' presence for four days after their brother died. And allowing the universe to be deafeningly silent after his own death until the third day does not mean that God does not hate death and will not eradicate it. God is just, and he will one day kill death entirely. Secondly, David says, not only is my God just, but my tears are bottled. My tears are bottled. Notice verse 8. He says, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Precious, precious truth. Tears are a natural and appropriate part of sorrow. God knows your sleepless nights. God knows all the tears you've cried, all the fears you've spoken and that you've not spoken. It's all laid bare before him. He's kept track of every single tear that has fallen this week from the faces of his people who have lost children and friends and brothers and sisters whom they have known or know people who know them. Every one of those tears has gone in God's bottle. Every single one. And also every single sleepless night that was experienced by every single one of our brothers and sisters this week. All their tossings, all their fears, God knows them all. And David here asks God to record his lament, to take note of his sorrow. He asks that God would register the record of his tears in the scroll of heaven to note each and every sorrow he is experiencing. What's the point? The point is that God pays attention to the details of the things that break our hearts. And he records them in his book. And he assures us that he knows us and them better than we do. Jesus reminds us, even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are worth more than many sparrows. God sees, God knows, God records. Who can keep track of numbers of hairs? Who can keep track of number of tears? God, because God is trying to communicate that he cares about the things that trouble you. I often think of the ending of Exodus chapter 2. Remember, after God's people are crying out for deliverance, this is right before God calls Moses, years before the deliverance would actually come, we are told four things in Exodus chapter 2. God hears the people's groaning. God remembers his covenant. God saw the people of Israel. And what? God knew. God knew. Sometimes that's all we need, isn't it? All I need to know is God knows all i need to know if god knows i know all i need to know and he does and we can thirdly he says not only is my god just my tears are bottled but my soul is delivered my soul is delivered look at verse 9 then my enemies will turn back in the day when i call this i know that god is for me verse 13 for you have delivered my soul from death Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. How can this be? David issues this strong declaration of praise, even in the midst of all this mounting terror. These words should take our breath away. This I know, he says in verse 9, my God is for me. What? God is for you? And this is what happens to you? Boy, I hate to hear about those he's against. How can David say those things? Because he knows how God is for us. And it's not by alleviating all our troubles. God was for Jesus and it sent him to the cross. God is for you when your words are distorted. God is for you when your harm is devised. God is for you when your steps are dogged. God is for you when your life is desired. We need to know when all the circumstances speak to the contrary. God is for me. He's on my team. He has my back. We need to know that God never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Even when all of life looks like he is doing that. And if God is for me, then he's orchestrating everything in my life for my good. I can trust him. Even when everything looks dark, he tells me not to be afraid. He will take care of me. We need to know that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Where does David look when he wants to know that God is for him? Verse 13, you have delivered my soul from death. That's where he looks. God hasn't delivered his physical life from death yet. He's still on the run. Now, we do know that he got out. Right? 1 Samuel 21 says he started acting like a madman in the presence of the Philistines. They're saying, we deal with enough crazies around here. Get out. Now, that's the way he expressed his trust in God. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, what can flesh do to me? Oh, 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 oh get him out. Trusting in God can look very different. And sometimes we can read we can read First Samuel twenty one and be like, Well, wow, let him look like David's trusting God. Looks like he's trying to act like an idiot so that they'll send him out. Yes, he's trusting God. And he's being wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove, as he does so. But we He knows that God is for Him, not because God has spared him from all trouble, but because he knows that not everything in his life will be easy, but he also knows that his soul has been delivered from death. See focusing on these sorts of eternal realities helps us to press on. Nicholas Wolterstorff was a Dutch theologian who wrote a book called "Lament for a Son." It was about the death of his own beloved son, and it's a memoir. Written in great pain about that loss, and in that book, Walter Storf writes the following, expressing the faith that we're talking about here. He says, "How is faith to endure, O God, when you allow all this scrapping and tearing on us, scraping and tearing on us? You've allowed rivers of blood to flow, mountains of suffering to pile up, sobs to become humanity's song, all without lifting a finger that we could see. You've allowed bonds of love beyond number to be painfully snapped." If you have not abandoned us, explain yourself. We strain to hear God in our sorrows, but instead of hearing an answer, we catch the sight of God himself scraped and torn. Through our tears, we see the tears of God. Through the tears of God, we see the splendor of God. See, dear ones, we worship and serve a God and Savior who has skin in the game when it comes to our suffering. Our Lord Jesus knows what it's like to suffer unjustly at the hands of people. He knows what it's like to have his words twisted and distorted. He knows what it's like as the son of David to have harm devised against him and to have his soul and life plotted and hunted down. And he confidently and consciously and completely trusted in the Lord, committing himself entirely to God's care for our salvation. And as a result, he came out on the other side. Three days later, triumphant over his enemies, proving that God is just. Proving that, yes, God kept the tears of Jesus in a bottle. Yes, God would rescue him as the son of David. See, dear ones, Jesus experienced Psalm 56 in a far deeper way than David ever did or ever would. Because his soul was delivered over to the wrath that David called down on his enemies. Because Jesus suffered in our place for our sin, poured into his soul, was the very wrath that we deserved for our sins for all eternity. That was something David never experienced. He didn't experience suffering eternally for his own sin, let alone the sin of a multitude that no man can number, and yet Christ did. Christ suffered in our place for our sin under God's wrath, The wrath that was reserved for us as God's enemies. Therefore, how should we respond? Well, we not only respond with trust, but we respond with worship. Notice verse 12. David says, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. Now, this is Old Covenant worship. They had certain vows they were required to keep. They had certain ceremonies they were required to participate in. They had certain sacrifices they were required to make. Sacrifices and ceremonies which we do not have to do any longer. We don't live under the old covenant. However, we do learn that thank offerings do take a different shape in the new covenant. They take the shape of prayer and worship and song to God. So just as David was resolved in his heart to continue to sing and offer his heart and his songs to God, no matter what happened, we must continue to do the same. We must continue to be grateful. No matter what. No matter what. And that's what David says here. He says, my, I will, I must render, thank offerings to you. Wait, David. It's okay. You can put thank offerings on a hold for just a little while. We understand. It's difficult. Life's hard. You're living out of a cave. David's like, nope. I must give my thanks to God. Dear ones, is that mark your soul in the midst of your trouble? I will give thanks to God. Kids struggling in classes, having a bad year, struggling with friends. I will give thanks to God. I will give thanks to God. I will find every single reason I can to be thankful and I will consciously tell God the reasons I am thankful. We do this ultimately because we know that everything sad will one day come untrue. We will not have any more stories of school shootings. Swords will be beaten into plowshares and they will not hurt or destroy in all of God's holy mountain. Death will be no more and neither will there be sorrow, tears or any more pain for the former things have passed away. Our worship can be certain because he is making all things new and he he will keep his promise. Do we not have a reason to be thankful? Psalm 116 verses 8 and 9, David writes at a later point, For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living." Dear one, that will be true of you one day. You will be delivered from death. Your eyes will no longer cry except tears of joy. Your feet will not stumble and you will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Why? Because Easter's coming. Easter's coming. Next Sunday, Easter's coming. You will be delivered from death. Because Christ was delivered from death. You will be delivered from tears. Because Christ was delivered from tears. You will be delivered from having your feet stumble. Because Christ was delivered from having his feet stumble. And you will be delivered into the land of the living. To walk evermore in the presence of God. With God and with his people. Because Christ went before you. Now Easter is coming next Sunday. But we live our lives between Good Friday and Holy Saturday. And we need to know... The end of the story. We need to know if the story doesn't end with Joseph in prison. Or Jonah in the whale. Or Jesus in a tomb. A death bringing Monday. That we experienced. This week. Leads to a death conquering Sunday. That we will experience. This, this Sunday. And next Sunday. And every Sunday that we celebrate the resurrection from here on out. And that's how we face death. That's how we get through Terror. That's how we continue to trust God. We know he's just. We know our tears are bottled. We know we can confidently rest in his goodness and in his plan. We know that our souls are delivered and therefore we will offer him thanks until we dwell forever with him in the land of the living. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your providential care for us, even though this sermon, this text was planned months ago. Lord, it was exactly the text we needed to come to this morning in light of all the events that we've experienced this week. Thank you for the reminders that you care for us. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, your kindness often shows up well in advance. So we trace your kindness back and we see and thank you for Psalm 56, which helps us to process David's terror and his struggle as men sought down his life helps us to know how to think through and respond to fear in our own lives and helps us to grieve and weep with those who weep among our brothers and sisters in Nashville, especially the Covenant Presbyterian Church and those who are connected to that school, the many, many churches that are represented by the students there. We do pray for you to get great glory through this situation, for you to turn death into life, eternal life for people, for those who are your enemies. We pray that you would reconcile them to yourself through the gospel. We pray that you would make your church strong and courageous in these days, even as they grieve with hope. We pray that they would be an effective witness in Nashville, all throughout that city, which is growing as it seems by the year and more and more people flooding into it. We pray that more and more people would encounter Christ as you bring good out of evil. Lord, we know that you are able to do it. You've done it millions of times. We pray that you would do it again for your glory, and comfort your people as only you can in the midst of it through your body, through your word, and help us to trust you confidently, courageously as we go forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.